So there was a fourth grade teacher, and she was giving her pupils a lesson in logic. Here's the situation, she said. A man is standing up in a boat in the middle of a river, and he's fishing. He loses his balance, he falls in, and he begins splashing and yelling for help. His wife hears the commotion and knows that he can't swim and runs down to the bank. Class, why do you think she ran to the bank? Well, a little girl raised her hand and said, I know, teacher. She ran to the bank to draw out all of his life savings. (laughs) Now, I know that was bad. Now, in our journey through Matthew, we find ourselves with the disciples faced with a similar situation. They're, it's almost like they're being in class, and the teacher, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus now asks them a very important question. Now, the first one, yes, really kind of two questions here. And the first question is what? Who do people say that I am. And I can almost kind of look around and see the disciples. I have this kind of image in my mind's eye that they're like a lot of those students that are just real eager. You know, oh, I know this one. And what do they answer? They say things, oh, you know, Jesus, some say that you're John the Baptist. And someone said, oh, well, others say you're Elijah. And someone says, well, maybe Jeremiah or, you know, you know, pick the prophet you want to be, Jesus. I mean, And here's the thing with all of that. None of these are slams against Jesus. You know, to understand the Hebrew understanding of prophet, that was a big step. You know, Hebrew, the prophets were the only ones who could stand toe-to-toe with a monarch and tell them, hey, you're messing up. Hey, you're doing wrong. Hey, you need to change your ways. Hey, you're leading the nation into sin and you need to repent and you need to go the other direction. They could do it and not be killed. Okay? That's big. Anybody could do it, but a lot of times it doesn't work out well. Truth is, John the Baptist really is kind of the last prophet. And he's a New Testament prophet, right? And it didn't work out well for John. He ended up... uh, losing his head over it. But in other words, they were held in high regard. They were held in high esteem. And so basically they're saying, hey, the people like you. They hold you in high regard. But then Jesus does something else. He doesn't just let it sit there. He then looks them in the eye and he says, okay, who do you say that I am? Oh, Jesus, come on now, really? You're going to make this personal? Who do you say that I am? And according to the text, only Peter answers. Now, really all of Scripture can really kind of come down to two questions, okay? And the two questions are this. Who am I? You know, who is Jesus? And do you trust me? Who am I and do you trust me? 
Now, Jesus has given us all kinds of indications as to who he is. I mean, just think of Jesus' teachings. So like any of the teachings we've ever received from any of the prophets, I mean, he even says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came so that the law would be fulfilled. No prophet had ever talked like that. But Jesus, time and again, has compassion and love for people. People that you weren't supposed to have love and compassion for. For lepers and for widows and for those who were struggling with life. Jesus healed again and again. And he fed people. And he fed multitudes of people. He even walked on water. And last week we even talked about him healing the Syrophoenician's daughter. A reminder that Jesus has even come to be God of everybody, not just the Hebrew people, but even the Gentiles, the outsiders from Judaism. Who do you say that I am? Now this is a very important question. How would you answer that? What would you say? Just think about it, you know? I mean, in some ways, I don't know if our society has really changed all that much in 2,000 years over who Jesus is. I imagine Jesus somehow, some way would kind of make everybody in our society mad at him for some reason or another, right? You know, I mean, the FDA would have been mad for him, for Adam, for turning water into wine without a license. I don't think you can do that. Or the EPA for killing fig trees. Or the American Medical Associates for practicing and healing people without a license. You can't do that. The Department of Health for asking people to open up graves for raising the dead and for feeding, you know, 15,000 people out in the wilderness. For the National Educators Association for teaching without proper, you know, probably didn't have any lesson plans. OSHA. OSHA would have got it mad. I mean, he walked on water, y'all. He didn't even have a life jacket on. You can't do that. Or the SPCA for driving hogs into the sea. Or the zoning department for building heavenly mansions without a building permit. You know? I mean, it's safe to say that the world didn't really understand Jesus then. And I'm not sure the world understands Jesus now. And you know what? I don't know that we always understand Jesus the way we should. But the one thing that you really get from what Peter says when he says, you know, here's who you are. He says, you are what? A living Messiah. You're the Messiah of the living God. That's an amazing testimony. That's like saying, you're not a dead prophet. You know? And the prophets, of course, always came to represent the law. And again, Jesus was saying, you know what? I'm not saying the law is wrong. I'm just saying we got to put it in its right perspective. I'm just saying we have to understand that there's this thing called grace and love and that it is in Jesus Christ that God does what? God gets personal. God comes to us in a way that we can understand and appreciate God. It's powerful. So, That always harkens me back. When I always want to talk about relationship, I always go back to the original relationship. 
So I got to go back to the book of Genesis. I got to go back to Adam and Eve because it's really an amazing and beautiful story. We know the story. We've heard it before. God creates Adam and Eve. God creates man and woman. And uh, God enjoys being with them. God enjoys being in fellowship with them. And I love the word. And some of you may have heard me. I've I've used this story before. And God bless me, I'll probably use it again because it's just that good. But the story is basically this, right? They're in the garden, and it's the perfect place. It's paradise. They don't have to work. The food is right there. You know, uh, they just enjoy themselves, and they enjoy each other's company. And here's the thing. They don't have any clothes on. In Texas, we call that naked. (laughs) They are naked. And now, when you get to nakedness in Hebrew scripture, it is a loaded term, okay? Because what does it mean? It doesn't just mean they don't physically have clothes. It means that. But it also means that they are vulnerable. And here's the understanding. You cannot be intimate without being vulnerable, without somebody knowing everything about you and loving you and all of it, right? And that's what we have here. We have Jesus and Peter's declaration. They're saying, you know what? You're the living God who came to have a right relationship with each of us. That's who you are. I mean, Peter's answer is foundational of what the church is supposed to be. So there's some key points in here I think you're going to find interesting, right? Number one. When somebody joins our church, I ask them a couple of questions. The first question I ask is, have you been baptized? And if you have been baptized, the understanding there is that you were asked that important question. Who is Jesus to you, right? Do you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And you got to answer that in the affirmative. That's the only way to get into the church. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. Peter was the first one to say, you are the Messiah. You are God. And Jesus says, okay, from that, I can build my church. Foundational. That's why it's a foundational question. So when people come to join, you know, hey, you said yes to Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? And then when we do baptisms, right? We just had this beautiful family. We had a baptism today. It was such a blessing. Thank you. But we had to ask him the question. Do you profess Jesus Christ? Now, every church that practices infant baptism has to have this thing called what? Confirmation. And it becomes so important because in confirmation, you then get to say, okay, it's no longer my parents' faith. It's my faith. It's no longer my parents saying they believe in Jesus. I'm going to say I believe in Jesus. All right? Again, it's foundational. That's why these things happen at the core of who we are as the church. Because we've got to get that one right. And I love, you know, let's go back to the scripture itself, okay? Because there's just a lot here, and there's just a lot to unpack. Um, I'm here in verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. Now, Peter is interesting because, right, we know his name's Simon, but his name now is Petra, you know, the rock. 
Isn't that the funniest thing? Really, Peter the rock? I'm thinking more Peter the sand pile than I do a rock. But I will say this. One of the things we got to give Peter credit for is, you know what? Peter allows a lot of grace and a lot of love to come into his life, even though there's a lot of difficulty and there's a lot of pain that goes into Peter's life. God uses that. And you know one of the ways you make rocks, right? You get some sand together and you put it under some pressure. And what happens? You get a sedimentary rock. I think Peter is a sedimentary rock. You know, that God's grace and God's love shape and transform Peter in something amazing. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, that ch- word for church there is ecclesia. And, and we've always translated church, but it actually a more accurate translation is to say the assembly. And what Jesus is saying, hey, this is the start. You are the first rock of a whole bunch of rocks of people who are going to say, who am I? And they're going to say, you are the son of the living God. You are God. Now, I also hope you get that. I hope you really understand that Jesus is God. You know, it's one of the basic kind of doctrines of the church, right? It's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so some of you might even think, well, that means Jesus is one-third of God. And the answer is no. Jesus is all God, all the Holy Spirit, and I should say all the Father, all the Son, and all the Holy Spirit all at the same time. Right? And you're like, well, your math's not working out, pastor. Like, I know, I got pastor math, right? (laughs) But it is, it's accurate. And the way that if you always challenge the church, the church would always say it is a holy mystery. In other words, how does it supposed to work out? We don't know. This is just what the Bible tells us, that God is God in three persons. Now, another part of this is understanding the nature of Jesus Christ. So, is he half human and half God? And the answer again is no. He's fully human and fully God all at the same time. How's that for an answer? You know, a half one makes you kind of a, uh, what's the word, what Hercules was, right? He was half God. He had all these kind of superpowers. But Jesus, okay, Jesus is God. We got to get that part right. We do not worship a human being. We worship Jesus. And Jesus came to us as a human being so that we could understand just how much God loves us. Now, that's another doctrine. Well, we're just hitting them today, right? That's the doctrine of incarnation, that God became flesh, right? I love going to a a Mexican restaurant and ordering me some Mexican food, and what do I say? I want some carne in it, right? Give me some meat. Incarnation is God in the flesh, God with meat on. And so that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a God who is a personal God, who is a relational God, who wants to be with you. And it is from that, and it's from our being able to answer that question that God can now build the church. Now, it goes on, right? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What in the world does that mean? It means what we do in the here and now has ramifications for eternity. What we do now matters. And it kind of harkens us back to last week when I talked about the kingdom of God is here and present. And if we're going to see the kingdom of God, we have to have faith in order to see that kingdom. But the kingdom of God is right here overlaid on the kingdom of humanity that we have built. And it's ongoing. There's people's lives that are at stake here. And so how we treat one another has eternal, eternal consequences. Loving each other into the kingdom of God. Bringing each other along. Helping each other along the way. It's having a bigger view than just a worldly view. It's having a view of faith of the world and how we interact and how important that is that we treat one another with amazing love and amazing grace. You know, quick story. I had a dear friend, gosh, about 25 years ago now. I imagine he's retired now, but he, at that time, he was a young father. He was a Marine, and his job was guarding an Air Force base in San Angelo. And uh, he gave his testimony one night. And uh, in his testimony, he said, I need you to know that I was just about ready to quit being a Christian. I was done. And he went on to say, my whole life, I had lived in such a way that I tried to always do the right thing, to live the right way, to do the right thing, to, to make the right choices. And he said, I just kept failing and failing and failing, and now here I am raising my two boys, and I don't know what's left, what's up, or what's down. I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm struggling. And I'm like, God, if there's no help here, I think I'm done being a Christian. And then he had an experience, okay? It got revealed to him who Jesus Christ really was. And I remember him then saying, all of a sudden it made sense to me now that God is a God of love and grace, that God's a God of relationship, and that no relationship is perfect and that we're going to mess up. And he looked at us all as he was given his testimony and he said, for the first time in my life, I realized that God wasn't a drill sergeant. And then he goes, you know what? I say that with great respect because a drill sergeant's job is to keep you alive, is to train you in such a way that you can act and react and do what you need to do in very difficult situations, which you just got to do it almost just out of instinct. I appreciate that, but I needed more than that. I needed a relationship that didn't just save life, but that offered me life, that filled me with life. I was just taken away. It made me think of the prophets, you know, in the Bible, on the law. But then all of us understanding, we gotta, we gotta have grace that goes right along with it. And then, of course, here's the one that kind of sticks on everybody, right? What does it say? 
Then Jesus sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Really? Well, let's put it in order, okay? Don't lose it. Understanding here is they don't know everything just yet. He's revealing slowly. He's teaching. He's helping. And there's something big. And right in the next passage, he goes into talking about how the Messiah, how he is going to have to die. And they're not going to understand that. And even when he tells them quite bluntly, but in three days, I'm going to come back from the dead. They still don't get it. Basically, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, okay, wait. You need the whole story, and it's coming. Just wait. In the meantime, love each other. Live into the kingdom of God. Show each other grace and mercy. You know? One of my favorite stories is told about... Uh, one of the great Wesleyan theologians. His name was Albert Outler. Outler was a seminary professor and lived in Dallas. And he was invited to debate an atheist over the airwaves. Now, this is even before, uh, well, it had television, but it was an opportunity to, to get the word out. And they kept saying, you know, Albert Outler was one of the smartest Christian men a lot of people knew. And they said, we want you to represent Christianity and, and, and uh, talk to this atheist and debate with him. And so they did. He finally gave in. And they had a debate over the airwaves. And they were really kind of going at each other. And, and Outler quickly realized that this atheist was very intelligent and very well-versed in some of the classical kinds of uh, reasons why not to believe in God. And they were going back and forth. And so Outler finally said, you know what? Tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And the man said, oh, that's easy. I don't believe in the God who sits up in the heavens with his long white robe and his flowing white beard looking down on us, judging us and ready to smite us when we mess up, ready to send us to hell for eternity at the littlest mistake that we make. There was a pause. And then Outler said, well, at least we agree on something. My friends, when you're asked the question, who do you say that I am? What's your answer? Again, it's important. And do you really trust in God? God who came to us as a human being, who, if all of that's true, changes everything for us. Who do you say that I am? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.